lawyer talk. The team's here. The, the original team. The team is the here. OGs. The beard. It's good to see you here, Beard. I've been missing I've, you, bro. I've, mi- I've missed I've, it, too. I've been so busy. Anybody got a riddle? What does Back to the Future, Back to the Future. Netflix, Netflix, and Federal Court have in common? What do what do Back to the Future, Netflix, and Federal Court have in common? Did you create that? That's my own riddle. That's your own riddle. I thought I, I know there's a Back to the Future like documentaries on on Netflix. I've watched. Yeah, documentaries what about this? What about this guy's built a car? He kind of just he was actually Columbus, Ohio, which was weird whenever he built it, and uh, he dumped all this money and built it in a time machine, but then he toured it around and he also made it the fastest one, the fastest DeLorean, the fastest DeLorean. You know, I, like, uh, I love me some Back to the Future. Do you love you some DeLoreans? I just love Back. That's like my childhood movie, man. Back to the Future is. I remember seeing it in the theater, and then when I got when we got done, my mom had took me and and it said to be continued. Yeah, I was like, "There's going to be another one. There's going to be another one." Yeah, and they were they were great, and I loved number two as well because I was young enough to feel like, man, whenever I watched the first one. This was actually going on in the back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because when he went back to the back, to back yeah. in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw three in the theater. That's what I remember. And I remember waiting to be like, dude, throw it up, throw it up, to be continued, throw it up. And they didn't. I was like, oh, man, it's over. It's, well, at the it's, end, it was all, that was how he, he wrote the whole movie. And they were like, we can't make a movie this long. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was right. one movie, and then it got broken right. into three of them. But we're getting off track on Steve's riddle. Well, I mean, you're I don't. Close. I, I I think I know the answer only because I think I know what we're going to talk about today. But oh, I've got the answer. It involves something with cocaine. Co- co- cocaine. A, a cool car. A cool car. You know, it's funny. In 1925, John DeLorean was born in 1925, um, and he was a maverick in the audio industry. Apparently, so he, which I mean, is a Model T, right? Is that 25? That's when he was born. When, mo- when Model T come out? It's it's. Uh, that was in the twenties. No, right? it was in like it was earlier than that. Nineteen nineteen. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it's uh, earlier than that. We can look that up. We gotta look we'll, that we'll up. Let's we'll just do that. But right uh, on there, the DeLorean. He uh, he he was the GTO. That's uh, that's his that's his baby right there. He had to hide that in the back in the day when American cars were American cars, American muscles, American muscle. And they were down in Detroit. There'd be uh, you know street races going on. And a lot of these designers and engineers from the companies would go down to see what these, you know. What the muscle, muscle cars were what, doing. What or the what the muscle, cars were doing, yeah. What the cars were doing, what these guys have done to them. You know, they wanted to look under the hood to see what these backstreet mechanics have put together because they're just seeing these powers run down the road. So they would go down there and take experimental engines and put them in, you know, like a Belvedere. They'd throw it in something mm-hmm. different. And they'd go down there and they would race on the streets in these, in these road races that were going on. You know, the illegal drag racing, which is a pretty big scene. And understandably, whenever Detroit was in the full steel boom of producing the American automobile. Well, and John DeLorean, right at the forefront of that, he started in the 50s. He started working as an engineer for the Packard Motor Company. So remember Packard. There used to be a commercial. Uh, there were a bunch of guys sitting around and uh, just on a... I think at like a lunch break or something. The guy's like, what are you eating? 52 Packard. And the other guy, what are you eating? He had some other thing. And they're just crunching on all this awful tasting stuff. It was, it was like a barbecue sauce commercial or something. But uh, so DeLorean started working for General Motors. And where, uh, to your point, Jared, he was credited, uh, and this is near and dear to my heart, for those who don't know, 
Uh, he was credited with developing the Pontiac GTO, uh, which was given the moniker muscle car, I think. That was the first of the muscle cars. And I love GTOs, always have, always will. But the idea was you could go, walk into uh, your friendly General Motors dealer, the Pontiac dealer, uh, get a car that the family could fit in and drive in, and then order it with like uh, awesome horsepower, awesome well, that performance. Was the thing. He snuck it in as an option. Yeah. As an add-on. The first year, it was because, a GTO option. Yes. Exactly, because they would not allow him to put that engine in the car and release it, so he tricked them in to sliding it in as an option. And then once the option's in sales and they saw what people wanted, well, then that was the birth of the GTO. It was the birth of the GTO. Because what, what did they put that in? Did you, uh, do you have the... Because before, before it was in Le Mans, it was it was a GTO. Yeah. So the the original GTO I think came out in '64, and it was the Le Mans, it was a Le Mans with a GTO option. I think by the time '65, Grand Turismo, right? Alamogato, yeah. or something like that. Uh, and then by '65 or '65, '66, it was its own car. By '69, I mean it was a it was a beast, and it was an icon on its own. That was when they had the judge. First came out in 1969 from the old show. You're come to judge. You're come to judge. It had all the. I, I've heard stories from old timers. 69 GTOs. Yeah. About uh, you know they were, used to race. This is local here in Ohio. They'd say, man, then my buddy showed up. We just heard him pulling in. We were like, what is this? He's like, just got it. You know, just bought it that day. He's like, let's race. And uh, then it was like everybody was chasing that because they came down hitting the streets hard. Yeah, and you know that that sort of was in the '69. In the '66, '7, and '8, they started. They had 389s in them, uh, and they added horsepower through all sorts of, of interesting ways, I suppose, with different heads and different uh, compression. They had a tri power on. Uh, I think that came out in '67. Maybe they had a tri power. Sixty. Somebody will correct us at some point. But in '69, just a good old fashioned Ram Air Pontiac 400. I think it was a Ram Air four. Yeah, with a four-speed Muncie, the old M21 Muncie, and those things were just uh, torque monsters. I mean, I don't know what they did full speed, but, you know, from zero to whatever, they were just beasts. He was a flashy guy, too, DeLorean. He liked to dress well, press suits. I've never seen a picture that, of him. Down before. the road, he got his, you know, the facelifts and tucks. He was uh, he was kind of a playboy. Yeah, he was sort of a playboy. Um he, he he just liked that, I think. And it was the 70s style, probably a little bit of blow, a little bit of uh, Playboy, a little uh, some flashy suits, some cash. And he was the man because he had invented the the GTO and, and, and you know, sort of made well, some money in the auto really industry. really launched and, Pontiac sales in a major way and their yeah. name. So, you know, he and he'd been doing it. You know, I mean, this wasn't his first thing. He, like you said, started there at Packard, which Packards were nice cars. Yeah. I Solid, mean, well built. Just an American icon. Yeah. So DeLorean had, uh, you know, he was a little bit flashy, and he probably was a little bit, uh, had his head a, a little in the clouds. Oh, but another thing, you know what's funny? You were saying, like, he, he had to sneak in the, you know, this is like the beginning and the end of the GTO life, he had, or the Pontiac life. He had to sneak in the GTO package initially. And then round about 1972, 73, Jeff, we had uh, womp, womp. we had all these all the the government gets involved. Womp, womp, womp. I had a 72 Chevy Nova, and that Inline probably had six. that probably yeah, had what see through it. What later became known as smoggers, smog heads on them because they created too much emissions. The insurance companies got pissed off because they were too powerful and too dangerous, and lo and behold. People could no longer go to their dealership, buy a family-looking sedan with a 400 
uh, Pontiac motor in it, putting out 400 horsepower, and it just looked normal. It looked like a normal car, and that was the muscle car. It was like a big, full A-body muscle car or car that had lots of power. Now, later, Mustangs came out, and they created the pony cars, and certainly Corvettes. Those were designed to be sports cars, but the muscle car is sort of cool to me because you could just be a family dad, go in, not even tell anybody, come home, and you've got a monster under the hood, and nobody yeah. knows. Uh, and you could order without all the badges or whatever you wanted. So, uh, but anyway, in in the seventies, after the new regulations came out with all the smoggers, et cetera, well, Pontiac clung on to the bitter end, uh, and actually kept putting and paying the freight on the big motors in uh, what I think was the Trans Am, and that's you know the Smokey and the Bandit era Trans Ams were the last of those. Uh, high torque, high point six liter engines that were yeah. coming in them without the smart. I mean, they were just on. doing it anyway. They didn't care, and then it all went to crap in the eighties, uh, which is telling because DeLorean didn't like that either, and uh, in uh, and after redesigning uh, the GMs and doing everything else, he left and created his own motor car company called the DeLorean. Hence, we now link up back to the future. Back to the future. You built a time machine. Out of a, De- a, De- a DeLorean? It's <laughs> a great line. I mean, come on. That car was always cool. And it, it was, got let's even. Make the doors it got, go I mean, up. Once, once you saw it in Back to the Future, man, yeah. it just was on. Yeah. Yeah. But so DeLorean starts his own company, and they make only one car. It was the DM, DMC 12 was the DeLorean model. I mean, you still see them around every now and then. Every now and then there's probably clubs, I'm sure. And, well, I'm about to hit you even more. That you know that the DeLorean company has been recently purchased a number of years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, they're open. They're open running right now. You can go ahead and buy a brand new DeLorean. Whenever he did, he actually went over to warehouse in Ireland because uh, to for the tax because of weird taxes were just too much for DeLorean to build his cars here in America. He was running low on the dough. He had to call up Johnny Carson. Here's Johnny. John, Johnny invested in him. He got a bunch of Hollywood people. Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis Jr. to invest yeah. into his company and. Uh, they were giving him a serious tax break. Like, I don't think he was paying any taxes in Ireland to make them. So he was having bodies formed, shipped to Ireland. Then it was being manufactured in Ireland. Really? So recently, not too long ago, and actually I've, I've got it right here online here. You can go ahead to the DeLorean Motor Company. Oh, look They've at that. got uh, California, uh, Florida, Texas. And whenever this uh, young gentleman, I saw a thing on Discovery Channel about him buying the company. They found this warehouse and stainless steel. The bodies were stainless right. steel, so they're fine no matter what. Yeah, they're not they're, rust buckets, they're, right? They're, yeah, they're fine. Well, they're really a big plastic car with a covered. It's sort of like a Corvette in, in a lot of ways in that yes. it, it's it, it's got it's really built of nothing structurally on the body. It just is this stainless steel. And people started shell. pulling them and restoring them, and especially after the the Back to the Future. And I do believe it's a Pontiac. Great Scott. S- the Solstice. The, they found Flexible an engine passer. that would fit in it because it had a horrible engine. Cool car. Wind, you know, the gold wing windows. I mean, doors that open up. And, well, it's it's like, suffered from the rest of the it's, 80s. Yes, it's, it's stigma, right? They sucked. It sucked. So anyway, I was watching this thing on Netflix the other day. Um, and it was called... Uh, Cocaine Island. You see that? Anybody watch that? It's the, what is it? If you want to look at it, the legend of. The legend of Cocaine, Cocaine Island. The legend of Cocaine yeah. Island. We just sat down here and Jeff had said that he hadn't seen it. I, I watched it the other night. We all talked about watching it, talking about it. And uh, I mean, my reviews is two thumbs up. I mean, it was 
very entertaining. I liked how it was, it was shot and done. And it's a story No, it's about a comedic stories. documentary. Well, I don't... Is that, I what, mean, I, is that what I read? It's, it's sort of... Uh, let me first of all let me say this about documentaries they are getting good i mean this oh, is not it's, like it's the old what i prefer film to strip. watch yeah it's not like yeah. the old film strips that we used yeah. to watch in grade school or uh you know like the old uh history channel black and white documentaries with the bad uh narration but no these documentaries are getting good and, and netflix has got it down to a science i think with like the making of a murder and all those like mm-hmm. this is emerging as a a real art form in in filmmaking and uh, it is. I mean, it, it's got a little bit of, uh, it's got just the right amount of parody and comedy to it, but the story it tells also has the right amount of parody and it's, comedy to it's, it. It's, it's, it's a great stories. Yeah, number of stories it's, in It there. starts as a story, and uh, Jeff, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. You, 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 you want me to break in? Tell you, I want to know everything, but anybody I'm listening to Press Pause, watch it, then but I'll give you a part, and then we'll stop. And okay. we'll continue on. Okay. So right now, hold on. Let's just give a fair warning. Uh, if you really want to watch The Legend of Cocaine Island and not be spoiled, now is the time to hit pause on this podcast. When I watched the documentary, I remember watching newsreels, and I was like, I remember this story. Yeah. Yeah. So. So now hit pause. You can come back. It's okay. See, this isn't you a live You pause it and watch it. And then yeah, they come, come back, back to us. It's yeah. all good. It's because we are going to cover some intimate details about the legend of Cocaine Island. Why? Because this is lawyer talk, and that's what we do. I mean, what else would we be talking about? Like the Mueller report? That's boring. That's boring stuff. This is real news here, Cocaine Island. Real news. Just a guy living <laughs> in Florida, right? Worked hard all of his life. Yeah, construction Build up guy. a construction company. He's building, you know, I mean, five-story hotels. He's working on stadiums. He's doing skyboxes. Things are going great. 2008 hits things aren't so great anymore the construction industry down the so tubes. he had to he had to sell the big house and the toys and get down and he had purchased a, a acreage of of land out kind of in the south area of florida there to where he just had it and goes from living in a mansion to a double wide still not you know he's not really that much crying about it but you know he's like they're living but it's not the, the life they had there it's an interesting thing because at this point in the documentary you don't know necessarily whether it's like uh spinal tap you know it's like a documentary but it's not real versus yeah. like uh, a real documentary that they're just i was like what is this it took me a second to is this a real story that they're telling or is it like a makeup story they're trying to tell in documentary form so do you feel like the guy looks like an actor that's the vibe no, you're getting no no uh, I mean, no okay, i mean no. he's playing a guy telling his story he's but just he's just telling his story and they're telling it in a way to where you get to see him dive in his pool and and swim in his goal like scrooge mcduck you know what i mean and put then, his big fatty in his lip he's a, he's, yeah, he, he's likes big, he likes to dip and he's sitting on his lazy boy and and he talks to his daughter and she says that you know he so they're living in the double wide now right and and he's not too much complaining but he's like there's nothing to do in this area where we're at Except for there's people that all have property and everybody gets together on Friday and Saturday night. We have a bonfire. We have a couple brews and we tell each other stories. And which is awesome because this is like a, and, and this hits home to me now with what I think our society is lacking, which is uh, community ties and community fabric and connecting each other on that kind of level beyond social media and your phone. I mean, these guys hang out around the fire, drink beers and, uh, and just interact and tell stories. And the way they told it in the documentary was awesome. I mean, I just, I really liked it. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry no, that's, go. no, that's, that's, you didn't erupt. You're going right along with it. But so there's a, uh, one gentleman that everybody knows out there, they call him the local hippie. They showed he's got nice gardens. He lives in his, his, his Airstream trailer and he doesn't wear shoes and he likes turtles. 
Wasn't so, his wife like in he, studying turtles? Yeah. So they were in. So he tells a story that said everybody's heard this story. He tells this story. The every, legend. The legendary story. But they've just kind of moved in. Never heard the story. So he's sitting down and tells a story about he's out looking for turtles in Puerto Rico. It was a this it little was island. An island near one part of the Puerto Rican islands, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he sees this what thought was a turtle bobbing, looking. He goes and gets it. It's a duffel bag. Hmm. He opens up the duffel bag. Cocaine. And then he's like, candy. And he's like, I would be loco to keep this because there's a lot of, you know, the cartel and everything. So now he's got this big bag of coke. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what to do with it. So he puts it here, buries it here. Then he wakes up in the morning. He takes over to another place. He buries it there. Then finally he gets it again. And he's finally like, you know what? I'm uh, going to bury it here. What's great about this guy, I think his name is Julian. Julian. And, and Julian is the guy that always walked around in bare feet in the sand. You can always tell where he's been. He never had a hurry to do anything. And you could tell he's probably not a guy that would ever really use cocaine. Certainly, he might like a little weed here and there. But he just more looks like a weed guy, that, that just a hippie hanging out, doing whatever. And, and the, way they, the way they describe this, it's like he's the, the most unlikely guy to find 32 kilos of cocaine floating around 70 in the ocean. pounds. Wow. Pure. So he buries it. Now he's living in Florida, and he buried it 20 years ago. He has a good idea where he thinks it is. Well, he buried it on an island in in Puerto Rico. That's underwater. It was 20 years ago. He was living apparently at the time with his girlfriend or wife or something who was the uh, scientist studying the sea turtles, these big turtles, and and the documentary always cuts to these turtles walking around, you know. (laughs) And uh, he, he had this piece of property they were living on that, had like a double wide or a trailer on it they were living in and uh, he just decided I'm gonna bury it there after several attempts of digging it up and burying it and digging it up he lands on that place buries it and then goes back to his normal life doesn't think anything of it and he in uh, over the, around the fire fight or around the campfire he's oh yeah one, one time, time I found 70 pounds of cocaine and I buried it and it's just like the thing that legends are made people are like no you it's know, all crap the story we've all heard him tell this story he's just high so now it, our contractor, gentleman, main guy there, he also seems like a really nice guy. An average, he seems like an average Joe, just really does. And uh, his daughter said that he always takes uh, stray cats under under his wing. You know, people in need, people in help. And uh, so he had this one guy that was friends with his son. And uh, this, he said he always had good weed, right? And uh, he would pay, pay him to wash his truck or come to work and clean out the trash and do a little odd jobs. So they're hanging out one day, and he told him the story about, man, there's this guy told me he's got this, and he was, and his buddy's like, we should go get it. His eyes light up. He's like, that's like over $2 million. <laughs> so I mean, then it's like the perfect storm. You get the, the, the our lead character is, who's had a huge falling from grace, right? Like he, he put, the, the, the documentary sort of gave this backdrop of, he came from nothing. His dad was in the construction business, but never quite got ahead. He learned the construction business and was able to get way ahead, made a ton of money, got way out over his skis on it, though, spent too much money. In 2008, bottom drops out. He goes broke. He's got, all he's got is property in a double wide. And, you know, his wife, who was used to driving around in luxury cars and having a swimming pool with uh, in the highest income neighborhood around, is now living in a trailer. And, uh, you know, he, he always had this guilt about that because you, you get the sense maybe – Either they wanted us to have this sense, or it's true, or both, that this guy, he wasn't really into the money. He just liked 
to go hustle and do what he does. I mean, it's like he liked the money and that was cool for him. But he just this big fat guy sitting with a fatty in his mouth or in his lip, you know, putting a dip in and hanging out drinking beers. That's what he was. And, and he liked to go hang out with the construction workers and build high rises and build a bunch of hotels. And when that stopped, that's still what he liked to do. And the money was nice. And he, he really felt like he was giving something to his family that he couldn't anymore. And he had a lot of guilt, I think, because of that felt that it was he was responsible for that and had these values that he wanted to be the one taking care of his family, even if it meant digging up 32 kilos of cocaine and selling it unlawfully for $2 million. But he was like, go dig up the cocaine. What would I, what would we do with it? And like 20 years ago, that's probably the, yeah. and that's probably the, I mean, cartels good stuff. And you got to remember Julian, the hippie, that they're going to get, where is it, is like this old hippie, right? Yeah, He's so. like, bro, dude, it's like, <laughs> near a tree man like i think there's an x and uh so he's like what would we do with it so now he's like i, I know somebody that we could like I, I got a guy i got a guy so he wants to sell the whole lot to this guy no the the guy his his, his son's friend or so oh, i think it was some guy he had taken under his wing to try to help who had been on and off the dope for a while um, hooked him up with another guy who was on and off the dope for a while. Carlos. And Carlos. And they're going to just say, well, look. I, hey, you know, Carlos, we, can, we, can we go you. get this. You get half and give us some money for the other half. We'll hold it for you. And Now, keep in mind, this is a guy. Who's, now, keep in mind, this is a dream. This is a pipe tail treasure. That, you know, I mean, they're going for looking for right. a treasure. It's a hidden yeah. treasure in Puerto on Rico. an island in Puerto Rico. So they have they have no direction from the guy that keeps telling the story. Well, Julian knows has some idea where it is. He's like, oh yeah, I could tell you right where it is. It's a, you know you just go up this road that's around a bend there, and you'll find this little thing here, and then it's real, right at the real end of the driveway. Thing. But but he, he they they it was specific enough. It, it was specific enough to where he's like, I had a trailer, and there's a septic system. That was one thing he did talk oh, about. Okay. He did talk about the septic system, and it's near the the septic system. So they they get the he gets this idea and it's almost like he got the sense and this is important the way they're telling the story and the way I was watching this I had to actually think for a second is this really against the law like yeah there's two million dollars worth of cocaine but it's not mine you're just going to get like yes it is this is this is still possession 100%. of a crap ton of cocaine it is still against the law in a huge way anybody who's ever defended anybody on like even and does it even exist is kind of where they're at too because this is just just ju crazy Julian saying that he buried seventy pounds of cocaine. So now you've got. I mean, they're 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 creating a criminal business now too with a plan to get it, a plan to distribute yes. it, a plan. Yeah, yeah. In our in our line of work, we call that a conspiracy. Yes. So they have created a conspiracy, sort of unwittingly stepped into this conspiracy with dudes that he probably would never have done business with in any other realm, right? It's like. I'm trying to think, who would I find to go deal in $2 million worth of cocaine? I mean, that is a, I mean, you know, that's not like a, you've just got that market in your backyard. I mean, you need to find criminals to, to deal with that. So um, he, and with that. He, he grabs his stoner buddy, and they're like this. They get on the plane. I guess they go to this I island, it and, and it's like one of the craziest, I guess, landing ports, like one of the most dangerous landing ports. Oh. And they're like, mm, and they're going land. sideways and up and down, almost completely. Prone. Are they in like a Cessna, like a two-person? Well, they're like in a puddle jumper. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, they get they get down there. They get to the island, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate some of this. They eat dinner. The one guy says they got sick from the shellfish. 
our contractor friend says, no, it's because you're not on opiates and you forgot your suboxone. <laughs> so now the young buck that's supposed to be there to help him find this is in the hotel room just getting sick. Oh. So he gets in his You Jeep. know what can help with that? A little of the devil's dandruff. Yeah. Should they well, find if it. they found it. So <laughs> old contractor has his map that, that old Julian drew out for him. And he's driving around. and now He weighs he, about 450 pounds. Yeah, he's a big guy. So. You're right, dude. He's, 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 Wait, who, which one's Our contractor. Yeah. Okay, the guy Mate, that he ride. He's the big Okay. Yeah, our okay. Hero. So he can't find a shovel. He's like, there's no Walmarts or hardware stores here for And he couldn't find a shovel. No place to buy a so shovel. There was they no think room. they know where it is? Well, they wanted to go look for it. You okay. need a shovel to dig up to dig it up. So he, they, 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 they don't find it. At the end, he's like, this is a bust. He's driving around. The trailer's not even there anymore. You know, he's, he, he, he's like, this is, this, this is a bust. Now, now, all the while, we got two facts to add into this. Uh, one, he has not told his family anything about this. He is all just doing business somehow. Fishing trip. Fishing trip. And secondly, he is uh, enlisted and uh, conspired with a drug smuggler who has an airplane. Not yet. No, no, no. I not, think he not already yet. had this no. guy. Not yet. No, right, not right, yet. Right, right, we right, haven't right, got there right. yet. How, who, who flew the plane in? Well, hold on. This, this, this is a commercial okay. flight. So okay. then they go back. Now, this is where he gets caught up. This is, this, is, this is kind of important. So he forgets about it. He's like, you know what? I couldn't get a shovel. The, it, we don't, the, the, the trailer wasn't there. I'm done. So then he's like, forget about it. So then Carlos keeps calling him, keeps calling him, Uh-oh. keeps calling him. Like, come on, man. You got to go get it. You got to go get it. So they fly out again. This time he gets a shovel. This time his partner's in better shape. They go out there, and they're trying to dig a hole. And the ground is solid, yeah. and he's a contractor. And he's like, you know what? To get this, I'm going to need excavation equipment. Yeah. It's like, I can't even get this. Once again, they scrap it, go back. I mean, the only thing is that the guy's got to be, um, it, it's got to be a situation where the guy couldn't have buried it that deep, right? I mean, well, if he's using it they, by hand or a shovel. Second trip. They give up, and then Carlos keeps hitting him up, keeps hitting him up, and, and finally he's like, okay, fine. What, what, what? And he's like, well, no, that was, you're right. They, yeah, they, they, they did because they, they were like, how are we going to get it back? Early on in the thing, before I think even the first trip. They, they laid off for a little bit, and Carlos came back and, mm-hmm. and kept hounding him. Yeah, so he, he engages Carlos who's a friend of a friend, who's a drug smuggler. He meets with Carlos, and they're actually showing, like, uh, like reenacting this where he's, like, hugging Carlos. He's, he's like, I didn't know how to trust a, a criminal like this. I do business my way, and, and I was so worried about this, but it turns out he's just a great guy. So he and Carlos sort of hit it off, and uh, Carlos is going to be the wheel guy, so to speak. He's going he's gonna to fly the dope back and smuggle it back in the United States for him after he finds it. So he goes on these three expeditions or two expeditions to get it first time, is a bust because he doesn't have a shovel. Second time, he's trying to dig um, and just, you know, he's not really, a, he, if you look at him, he doesn't look like a guy that's going to work a shovel very long. So <laughs> he, he, they can't get, they can't break the ground and, and doesn't happen. They need an excavator. Meanwhile, Carlos is like, we still got this, man. We still got it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then um, eventually they're like, Carlos is just, he's taken over. So he, he, he's like, I'm done. I'm not going to find it. And he goes away. And Carlos keeps calling him, says, come meet me again. And they show him, like, the first meeting. He meets him at this bar, and he's doing shots of tequila. He's so looks, nervous. He's got, his, he's, got his, he's got his shirt open, and he's like, hey, my friend. So tell me, is it, this a document? Are these real shots of them doing this, or it's reenacting? Well, it's reenacting. It's reenacting. Okay. They do get okay. to a few real shots at the end of the documentary. Okay. Once okay. the story's kind of told. 
Gotcha. So then we're going through, and Carlos says, I've got another deal for you. Brings him up and sets him down. He's like this. I'll tell you what. If you give me the map, tell me where it's at. I'll go get it. I've got people. I'm from Puerto Rico. You're gringo. I can go down there. I'll get it dug up. You give me the map, I'll split it with you. Just for the map. Just for, Just the, for map. the map. Yeah. Just for the map. And the map was given by the guy that keeps telling the story? Well, yeah. It's, okay. It was a handwritten map here, right, with an X marks the spot. I mean, literally okay. a treasure map. A, tre- a treasure map. Okay. So he gives it to him. Man, that's a big, just for the map, you get half. That's a big so then commitment. Time goes by and time goes by. He's like, if this guy gets it, he's not ever going right. to give it to me. He's going right. to rip me off. Thought for sure he's going to get ripped off. Then he gets an email. And if Carlos gave him his card, it's like, you know, blah, 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 you know, aircraft. It's a, you know, he's got an airplane company. And uh, he gets an email from the company. And it's a picture of a satchel that's been dug out of the ground. And, yes, really, and he's like, they this found the it. Drugs. They found it, and then he was like, "Okay, I need you to meet me." And uh, he was at work, and he's got his partners that can't get in touch with him and stuff like that. So he's supposed to meet at one place, and then he gets there, and he says, "No, you got to meet me at this other place." And whenever he gets to the last place, he's like, "You got to meet me in thirty minutes, or the deal's off." And it's like a sporting goods store. He's like, "I'll be in the fishing aisle. I'm gonna get me a fishing reel." Now, th- then the documentary cuts to him. It's, this is after the fact footage they created. They cut to him in his F-150. I mean, that was a GMC uh, Sierra, this yeah. truck, just flooring it, gunning it, 80 miles an hour down the freeway because he can't get there in time. So, But then they go, and you know what store it was? It was Gander Mountain. At the end, they showed like the pictures of yep. them at Gander Mountain. Yeah. So he's at Gander Mountain. Just, he's like, I've only got 30 minutes to get there, or is he going to leave, and he's going to leave the country, and I'm not going to get my cut. And there he, see me. And he goes in there, and he pulls up, and he goes to the fishing aisle, and he's there he's got the little light reel. He walks up to him, and he was like, man, he was like, I thought you were going to, I never thought I was going to see you again. Yeah. He was like, I'm a businessman. I wouldn't be in business if I didn't do it like this. So he gave him the keys to his trunk, which what was he driving? A nice red, was it a, was it a Chevelle or a, it was a convertible? Uh, it might have been a Pontiac. No, it was no, a Pontiac. No, no. I didn't know if it was a Le Mans uh, or maybe not. Maybe an Impala. Impala, Impala convertible, yeah. Big red, he's like, okay, you go down there and go in the trunk and uh, just get the load. And it's, it's in there. So he pulls out to the far end of the mountain. And I'm not, I'm Gander Mountain. He, he pulls out to the far end. And... Uh, He's like, nobody was around. He's parked in the far end of the parking lot. So he's just sweating, he's nervous, you know what I mean? He opens up the trunk, there's a bag, he unzips it. There it is, man. Like 30 kilos of blow. So he zips it back up, walks it over, puts it in the trunk of his pickup truck, closes the tailgate. So in nineteen eighty two rides off into the sunset. In nineteen eighty two. Man, I almost think I'd be like, look, here's the deal. I don't want that Coke. You know what I mean? Like, c- cut me in for some cash and just be done. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, John DeLore in 1982 and October 19th ran into financial trouble, had to close down and shutter up his factory in Ireland, as it turns out. And uh, that same day, he was arrested on drug trafficking charges in Los Angeles um, because several months earlier, he'd been approached by a former drug smuggler turned federal informant and the two men engaged in a series of discussions about a deal involving cocaine smuggling and money laundering that would potentially save DeLorean's business. So DeLorean is all sorts of uh, 
uh, cash strapped and uh, gets involved in this drug cocaine drug smuggling operations and uh, is later put on trial as it turns out so when this guy uh, and we'll get to finish that story in a second but as as our hero here is sitting in the parking lot just loaded up his GMC Sierra Federal no. agents, no. federal agents come piling out of the out of the out of the trees, out of the woodworks, and here comes Carlos. But this time he doesn't have his silk shirt on; he's putting his badge down. Oh, he's got his DEA hat on, <laughs> the DEA, Homeland Security, whatever it was. I forget what happens was their original guy, their original dude that he'll sell it because he was he'd been in jail a number of times. Yeah, well, he gets pulled over for a traffic right, violation. For traffic violations. Following too close, that's why too close. Imagine that. Yeah, the yeah. following too and, close. And uh, they search them, then they don't search the tank, then they search it, and there's 120 oxycodones, so they get him in the car. He's a third striker. And he's a third striker, and he knows that he's going to do life, and they're like, he's like, can I, is there any way I can work with you guys? And they're like, well, what do you got for us? Now, we're talking about local sheriffs. Local sheriffs. So imagine this. Now, we've had this come up before. Where you get pulled over. Uh, we have clients been pulled over on the side of the road, traffic violation, and lo and behold, they are li- this guy in this guy's case literally sitting on a shit ton of illegal contraband, like really big stuff, like oxys or opiates yeah. or you know whatever, or like a huge chunk of cocaine, and and you know the local yokels don't necessarily know what they have stumbled into here. This isn't like a federal task force operation, and not to say they're incompetent, but it's like they just thought they were getting a traffic stop. Now it turns out that they've got this monster on their hands. Because he said, what if I tell you about $2 million of cocaine that's about to come into the country? Yeah, that'll stop the clock for a second, won't it? Yep. So what's their first reaction? Whatever. Yeah, right. Whatever. It turns out it was... Because um, at the end they do show he had put on the spy camera glasses and the bug and he would go and sit down at our contractor's office and they'd have a beer and he would talk about getting the cocaine and selling it. And now even on some of the videos there, he's like, I don't do this. I would never be able to get rid of it. I don't even, you know, and he's, he's just like laying it on. It wasn't, was the first guy Carlos or the second guy Carlos? There's, uh, the, there's the, two the, guys. The, the, uh, the, uh, the pilot was Carlos. The other guy. Confidential source number one. Or CIs. And they, they showed him in like masks. The real guy apparently in masks getting interviewed. And, uh, you know, he, he allegedly got cleaned up and didn't go to prison. Got, didn't get charged anything out of the oxys they found in his crotch uh, and because of the cooperation on our hero. Uh, so he tells these guys this and said, look, I, I got a guy who's going to bring in $2 million worth of cocaine. And if you got to you got to go back to the story and realize that at that time, nothing had happened yet. Nothing. They nothing. Found the it'd coke. Been, it'd been a discussion. It's still just like, hey, uh, this guy said he buried a bunch of cocaine. And if they would have dug it up, they, how would they got it back? Well, because on the first flight back, when they landed the puddle jumper, the dogs came out and they didn't have any drugs on them. They didn't find any. Went through all their bags, and he said that scared them enough to be like, how would we get it out of there? That's yeah. when they got introduced to the pilot, Carlos. Gotcha. Carlos. So, so your thought is they never found anything. Well, well we don't know. So, so go ahead. No, no. Go, you're, so this guy, you know, the, 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 the documentary sort of halts in its tracks when the guy sees red laser pointers on his chest in multiple numbers and the feds converge on him. Carlos pulls out his badge and hat. Turns out he's Homeland Security or DEA, whatever it would be. And uh, now he's busted. 
Um, so what you have is this happy-go-lucky sort of uh, overweight guy, just everybody's pals, beer drinking, pot smoking, hang out with you by the fire dude who's built a huge business, lost everything, and was building it back up, uh, all of a sudden going to prison for life on a cocaine charge. I mean, I mean, look, this is a federal cocaine charge. Uh, 30-some kilos is a 10 to life no matter how you slice that up with mandatory time. I mean, this is real stuff. And yeah. it was almost like you, you felt this guy's pain in the documentary because up until that time, he never really felt like he wanted to commit a crime. He was just like, oh, my gosh, this will be fun. Let's this go dig incredible. up 32 kilos. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been in trouble before. I'm not a criminal. I just want to dig up 32 kilos and get the money. I don't think he ever put together that possession of that much cocaine is a huge crime. Selling it is a huge crime. Engaging in that conduct with others is a huger crime. And uh, he could be caught for it. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I feel horrible for this guy. Well, that's what he kept saying. It's like everything just kept getting better and better. Whenever they said that if I give him the map, I get half and I'm doing nothing. He's like, I get half for doing nothing. Sure. Here, here's the map, Carlos. Yeah. I don't even know if it is really going to take you anywhere. Yeah. 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 So Carlos goes and digs it up. Now the picture he sent was questionable. We'll get to that in a second. But what, why do I keep flashing back to DeLorean? Because his primary defense, entrapment. And anybody who remembers DeLorean, now DeLorean's a fascinating story. I mean, what you got is a car guy, uh, this sort of uh, living, living flashy dude in the 70s, um, trying to keep that flash all the way through into the 80s, build the fanciest car of all time with the doors that go up and, uh, and all this modern stuff um, going bankrupt and broke. And then all of a sudden he's charged and arrested the same day his factory closes with possession of cocaine because he's engaged in a cocaine deal and money laundering with people. So we end up in this scenario where John DeLorean um, is charged and actually goes to trial for money laundering and, and trafficking in cocaine. And uh, I bring this up because it is, in fact, one of the seminal cases still to this day for federal entrapment defenses. I mean, everybody talks about entrapment. Everybody is, uh, you know, I hear about this all the time where people, kind of clients will come in and they'll be like, and it's always in the same scenario. It's always the snitches. You know, I, what about entrapment, man? This guy was working for the government. And I'm like, all right, well, entrapment, that's a tough one. And you, you start to research this and you go back to it. And DeLorean is still sort of the mainstay in the entrapments. But at the end of the day, entrapment is a tough thing to run. You hear um, people all the time. They're like, they can't sit on the side of the road. Their lights off. That's entrapment. Yeah, I'm entrapped. It's like, actually, you were speeding. <laughs> I'm just, right. just, just going to be honest with you. Right. So you the, got caught speeding. For those who want to know anything at all about entrapment, just call John DeLorean. Oh, never mind. We'll tell you right here. Uh, entrapment, it's a complete defense to a criminal charge. So what, what this means is if you were entrapped, you get out of it. You have to prove that the government entrapped you. What does that require? Well, I mean, the first thing is you have to have significant government inducement to commit a crime. So they can prosecute you. So think about that for a second. A government inducement to commit a crime so they can prosecute. So when we think about what inducement is, government inducement to commit a crime, that means somehow they have enticed you into committing a crime. So if you're going to be entrapped, I mean, we hear this, I hear it so many times, like, I, I would... I got entrapped, man. I, I, you know, they, they, I, they, they made me do this. You know, you get a snitch who is uh, selling drugs and he's selling to an undercover uh, government informant, right. an actual agent, or even maybe a snitch who's working with the government so closely that he says, I got entrapped. Well, 
All right. Well, did the government really induce it? Well, in DeLorean's case, they said yes. I mean, the government was so involved with this um, other co-conspirator that they put him up to doing it. Which brings you to the next thing that's essential for entrapment is that you cannot be predisposed to engage in criminal conduct. Predisposed to engage in criminal. This is what you said, Jared. You got a guy sitting on the side of the road, or a cop sitting on the side of the road, and you're just cruising down the road speeding, and you get pulled over. It's like, well, he didn't have his headlights on. I didn't see him. And people are like, I got entrapped. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You just got caught. That sucks, but it's not entrapment. Uh, and then you get the other scenario, like in the drug dealing thing. It's like, man, I, this is entrapment. I never knew it was a cop. Or, so or, it's more like when they get pushed in a situation to do something they normally wouldn't have or could not have done. And had no predisposition. So not, not just could not have done, which is a great point that we're going to get to with our happy Netflix guy, or maybe unhappy. Um, it was, uh, it's got to be a lot. It's got to be that you wouldn't have committed this crime except the government induced you to do it. So you never would have done it unless the government induced you to do it and you had no predisposition to do it. Now here's yeah. the problem with predisposition. Here's the problem with this. It's almost like they did it on purpose. They added that element yeah. because predisposition means I am not a criminal or I am a criminal or if you're the government or if I'm the defense, I guess I have to establish under any circumstances, I would not have been predisposed. In other words, I would never have thought about doing this uh, absent government inducement. Now, here's what here's the problem with that in a trial setting. If you're especially if you're a criminal, you can disprove. But if the government can the government can disprove your claim of predisposition by showing all the really bad stuff you've done in the past. Oh, you're not predisposed to doing this. Well, in 2004, weren't you convicted of trafficking in marijuana yeah. in South Carolina? Well, how about in uh, 2006 where you got caught with that eight ball of cocaine? Well, in, in 2007, it looks like you, uh, you were uh, money laundering with so-and-so. In 2020, you were doing that. You know, it's like right. they, they just go through all this, and all of a sudden your claim of predisposition really turns into an evidentiary uh, door that the government has driven a truck through right. uh, to prove how awful a person way, you are. The way I always try to square it in my head, and I guess obviously this is if you knew all the facts and it was all laid out that you could sort of defend it, is... Like, let's say I'm a marijuana dealer and I deal in marijuana and the guy knocks on my door every day saying, hey, man, I really like some cocaine. No, man, I don't deal in cocaine. I only do marijuana. No, come on, man. Please, dude, I, we really need cocaine. No, man, I only deal in marijuana. He does that every day for two weeks, three weeks. And so he says, dude, I don't even have a contact for cocaine. Come on, man. I'll pay you extra. Just get it for us. Come on. And that's a, and that's a government agent. And it pushes in into eventually doing that one deal for cocaine. That's where I try to square it in my head. Now, I don't know if I'm accurate on you that being really entrapment, close. but so now you're getting closer. What you have there is government inducement. The government has certainly induced this guy to do something he wouldn't have done. This, in your scenario, your happy drug dealer or unhappy drug dealer would not have delivered the cocaine to anybody because that's not what he does. He's a pot dealer, not a cocaine dealer. So he, he was certainly induced. Now, what about predisposition? Right. That's where you throw in that old stuff. It's He's like, got cocaine now, condition, now our, convictions and now stuff. Now, our, our, our Netflix contractor has got none of that right no he, prior he, has, record. he has no prior record yeah He's, no prior record but that doesn't necessarily yeah. equate to predisposition the lack of a record or the existence of a record but uh so Wouldn't say, you just go through the fact that's like okay well let's talk about what you did six months ago you you know orchestrated a you paid a paid for a plane flight into this location yeah i mean so you, i mean you could go through all that predisposition in this in our case or in the netflix case is a little bit different than the drug dealer's case we're talking about 
But that's what made it so unique in this Netflix thing is that he had nothing before this, before Julian's story. But go back to your thing for a second. So is your guy, is your marijuana dealer predisposed to deal in cocaine? Would he have, would, would he have the impetus? Would he do it? Was he predisposed to doing it? And it, you really get in the weeds on it, and it becomes a factual question for the jury. The problem with it is, is that you end up with the jury hearing all sorts of bad stuff about your client because it opens up the door for character evidence. Things, bad things your client does, generally the jury doesn't get to hear about that unless it's directly related to the case. You can't just show that he's a thief unless he takes a stand and then it's offered to prove he's not credible. You can't show that, you know, he, he's done all these bad acts unless it, in, in, unless you open the door and entrapment opens the door. Um, the predisposition inquiry focuses upon whether the defendant quote was an unwary or was unwary, innocent or, Instead, an unwary criminal readily availed himself of the opportunity to perpetrate the crime. So, you know, you could just be a criminal and, hey, I'm open for anything, man. Hey, you know, I've never, no, I've never bashed a mailbox, but toilet paper to a couple, hell, hell yeah, I'll go do that with you. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And I, that's generally where it lies. And you end up getting, it's, it's almost impossible to well, prove. And, it's so, what, yeah, and what it's I saw so in the story is how he was pressured. Like, I do believe there's points and times where he was like, this is a myth. This is, and they kept, come on, come on, try it again. Let's get it. Let's do it. Then finally, give me the map and, and, and I'll bring it to you. You know, it just, there was a lot. Because if you see this top-notch crew that went to Puerto Rico to dig it up, they were never going to dig it up. They, 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 right. I, I, and they would have never been able to get it back if they hadn't been offered this, you know, flight in and, 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 yeah, the, the and we'll crime dig it. was impossible. It was, they would have never got, except for the government involvement. Now That's when, what made it interesting. When they were talking to a couple, they had the black lid on them, the couple of the, the Homeland the security guys, yeah, the agents, there, the agents. Yeah. And, uh, it was, fu they were like laughing about it in multiple areas. And they were, the one thing they said was like this, they're like, you know, whenever you start and get a small guy, you always want to get a bigger fish. So you get them to flip and you get them to go up. And sometimes you go through three people because you want to get to the biggest fish. Our contractor, they were like this. He wasn't a big fish. He wasn't even a fish. He was a unicorn. Uh, <laughs> that's and they were like, we just wanted to chase this unicorn because yeah. it was so funny. Like it yeah. couldn't be. Right. It was, a, it was an innocent so They wanted to keep pushing it. Just be like, let's find the treasure. And whenever I'm thinking about that too, and as, as a child, I used to live in the Ozarks. I used to go, and I would go digging for treasure that I thought maybe I always because Jesse James, you know, I mean, every where I lived there is Jesse James, everything, and there was all these stories about all this Jesse James gold that's hidden in the Ozarks. To this day, there are hunters out there looking for the James gangs, certain bits of gold that they've hidden in the Ozarks. Oh, I didn't know. That. So I was always out scouring around, you know, ten years old, twelve yeah. years old, something like that, looking for treasure. And it's like, if you could ever find treasure. In, in United States. It appeals to all. I mean, I mean everyone has that. Everybody I've had those has moments. You've had to walk in the beach and you're yeah. like, man, what, every, what if I Every just... kid in the United States has yeah. this notion of finding buried treasure somewhere. Yeah. Whatever it is. It might be something you buried 10 years ago and you just want to get it back. It might be something you heard somebody else buried 10 It might be real money. Uh, movies are created on it. Stories are written on it. Treasure Island. I mean, it's it's like this is... This is lore in our in our world, uh, 
And it was a story that you heard drinking beer right. and smoking yeah. dubs by a bonfire. Like, is this even real? Right. Well, well, clearly the government didn't care. Jacobs versus United States says this. Now, this is the U.S. Supreme Court back in 1992 talking about entrapment. Uh, you can, if uh, those scholars out there can look it up at 503 U.S. 540 at or about page 548. Um, it, it, it talks about predisposition and and what it is and what it isn't, and it, it, this, this sort of broadens the definition. Predisposition may exist even in the absence of a prior criminal involvement. The ready commission of a criminal act, such as where a defendant promptly accepts an undercover agent's offer of an opportunity to buy or sell drugs, may itself establish predisposition. Now, this is the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, th- apply this to our, uh, our Netflix dude. He... And now, Jeff's here in partial story. One thing I want to drop in Jeff's head. Now imagine that this person just walked into your office and is going to tell you this story. Right. Because you do trials. Yeah. I've seen you do them. Yeah. This, you could have, this could have came to your desk. Yeah. And right. what do you do? And I, th- this is exactly where I went with it when I started, when it got to this part and I was like, because you wonder, is he going to get away with it and he got caught later? Because you, you just sort of sense yeah. watching the documentary. All right. Either way, he's talking to us now. So he didn't do life in prison. Uh, or is it all going to be made up, or is it a real story, or is it not, or did he get caught, did he get out of it, did uh, he get away with it, who knows, did he become a snitch against And they're like, Channel 4, here we are, a man got caught in DEA bust with... And they're all joking about it. And and so it was all over the news, his face is there, there's a a reporter standing, like he says, standing out in front of, here we are, in front of the Gander Mountain Sporting Goods store where, you know... Man. How many ever kilos of cocaine and his face is posted up there. And now you got to remember this, his friends, his neighbors, his wife did not know about this. None of them. None of them. He kept None it quiet. He, he went outside. Oh, okay. He went outside okay. the fold. And then they started talking entrapment in the documentary. They, they interviewed the guy's lawyer. Uh, and he sort of talks about how, and you could tell the guy had been around the block. He's a war horse. And uh, he'd been in federal courts and he understood the game. And, and, you know, like anything else, and this is relevant like for our college scandal right now, you know, the, do you take the plea agreement? Do you not take the plea agreement? What are your defenses? And um, in this situation, he did not take the plea agreement. Didn't plead guilty. I think there was 10 years in the plea agreement. Or was it more? Nah, it's probably less. More, I'm going to guess it was less. I'm going to guess what, I don't know if they ever told us exactly what they deal he turned they out. Did not, they just said it wasn't a good deal. It wasn't a good deal because here's the, here's the situation. Back, uh, and I'm not, I don't know for sure whether the sentencing guidelines were still mandatory at that time, but uh, just by statute, this is a 10 to life. They were claiming that they were mandatory, that it was minimum of 10. Yeah, well, that's statutory. Well, so that's, statutory is minimum 10, yes. and then the guidelines themselves might have, probably got him a minimum 10-year sentence, and uh, and what was supposed to happen, who knows. But we know this. In federal court, generally speaking, they offer you a deal. And this has happened in our college scandal case. They offer a deal. Most of the people took that deal. But if you turn down that deal, now there's no deal. And now you're you're in it. You're, you're fighting not only what's in front of you, but whatever they can bring at you uh, now and in the future, it's coming. And you're not going to just fight one. You're going to fight 20 if that's what it is. So that's what our boy decided to do. He decides to go fight. And uh, the defense they're going to present, entrapment, which was fascinating to me. My brain started to go through it, and I'm just like, well, wait a minute. He was predisposed, wasn't he? he he's the guy that got the story. He was made efforts before the feds got involved. Yeah. But then he had given up. 
Right. Sort of. He had sort of like resigned himself. to, I yeah. don't, ah, it's never going to happen. Okay, here's a map. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, like, it's like, not going to happen. Like, even if you find it, like, I'm going to get any of it. Sure. Yeah. You know, maybe you, you would, but here's the map. Yeah. And, it, and I was saying, well, that's interesting. Maybe. And then another point comes up is that he never, it was an impossible objective for him personally. He could not have done it. He, in fact, tried and, and failed. He could not have done this on his own. Without government involvement, as it turns out, he would never have, he would have never, possessed his cocaine. He would have never had it. He had never done it before. He had never engaged in drug trafficking before. He had never engaged in any crime before, whether financial or otherwise. So he would not have done it except for the government involvement. Except the government wouldn't have done it except for his involvement, right? It's just, it was and the government a, has admitted that they think it's amusing and they're chasing a unicorn. Yeah, they call him a unicorn. And then, a white whale. And then they, you know, they bring to the courtroom the, his half of the cocaine. Yeah. And, but he's charging them with 70 kilos, and they got 35 kilos mm-hmm. on the table. I don't even so think they like, brought 30. I think it was well, only like three they yeah. brought in. So they're like, where's, where's the rest? They're like, where, where's, where's the rest of the cocaine? Never produced it. Never produced the rest what? of the cocaine. So what happened to the, what, if you I got mean, three kilos. The, theoretically on a historical case, though. In theory, but man, what would you be doing? So I, like I'm seeing this evidence coming into courtroom. I'm thinking, and if you saw the picture they produced, now I don't know this to be fact. I should have done some research on this. I should have gone and pulled some of the records on it. Um, but maybe Taylor. We'll get Taylor to do this. But anyway, I, um, they, they showed like this nighttime picture of an open duffel bag. Like a burlap sack full of dirt. That almost looks like there's something there, but it wasn't obviously, I mean, it could have been anything. You could have wrapped up anything and called it cocaine. Well, he thought, he assumed it was the cocaine. I assumed it was the cocaine, but then they never really produced any more pictures of it. They didn't produce pictures or evidence <coughs> of the dig. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good fact or a bad fact. They never produced like uh, they never showed pictures of them with a, with the crime scene taped it's off. It's a bad with, fact because he knows now. I mean, this is meant for him. They said, I got the sack. They said and, the only photo that was taken was with a cell phone camera. And they're like, why don't you have any of the pictures of you guys digging it up or where are you exactly located? And they're like, well, we had to do it at night. And it's not like we got professional photographers around, so we didn't videotape it. Which is such nonsense. Which is, but they're, if you're going to everything available to them, they're federal agents, right? Yes. And if they have a cell phone, they do have the capacity to take pictures at every juncture. So they got one photo of the dig. And, only and it a, was just a, wait a minute. Just they're a saying that, so the feds were claiming that the photo they sent him was a real photo of the satchel. It was yeah. real, and it was the only one. One photo. And when they produced the dope in the courtroom... Okay. It was only a portion of it. I thought it was only three kilos. And that was it. And nobody knew where the rest went. I would want to know, did they really dig this stuff up? And I'd be interviewing witnesses. does that matter? I think it does because there's some question in everybody's head. Did they ever really find it? Did they really find it? Well, I understand that. I mean, we can answer that question another day, but he still agreed to take half of the score on cocaine. Uh, it wasn't even half, was it? I think it was like, it was three, like three kilos, three kilos. Yeah. 32. I mean, this is like in Ohio trying to sell somebody a kilo of flour and, and pass it off as cocaine. You might as no, well I have get cocaine. It. But if you're running an entrapment defense, is it even real? I mean, it certainly would it, would it exonerate him academically? Maybe not. But this is a factual defense to a jury. And if you can establish that there was no evidence the government ever dug any, digged, dug, dag, never, ever, ever upturned any dirt and found it, and there's no evidence of whatever happened to the rest of the cocaine. And there's only one cryptic picture of this entire operation where the government gets on a plane, flies to Puerto Rico with agents at night, and engages in this crazy uh, drug op- or drug enforcement operation. And all they produce is one picture. 
at the same time, you've got a guy who's never been in trouble before, could not have committed this crime unless all those other things happened with government intervention, and now is on trial in federal court running an entrapment defense. I sure as hell would want to have answers to all those questions. And if there weren't, well, yeah. I mean, it would have been front and the center. The criminal intent can develop at any point. It's like the, the biggest problem for me is he saw the picture. He knew exactly what that picture meant. He got orders to meet somewhere, and he drove like bad out of hell to get there. Well, let's talk about this. If you and I are engaged in discussions. I mean, he could pick up a phone, call the police, and say, I need some help, man. Well, this say, is crazy Say you shit. and I are engaged in discussions. We're going to go. I know a buddy, and uh, you know he's got some marijuana plants out in the woods. We're going to go take them. And uh, you say, yes, you go do the dig and I'll, I'll, I'll take the, uh, I'll split it with you. And uh, I say, sure, that sounds like a plan. If I send you pictures of plastic marijuana plants and you say, awesome. Right. I'm going to meet you and uh, I'm going to get my half of these and you're going to take your half. Good doing business with you. I've never done this before. I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll just get, I'll just learn to get high at night and, and that'll be that. Well, you show up and I'm really a cop and uh, I put you under arrest. And it turns out at court, they don't, it, 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 they only, they don't have the pot. I mean, it's not real. If you could prove that I only had plastic and the pictures weren't real. I know, but that, I mean, that happens in federal court every day. I mean, how many drug cases do we have where they don't have any drugs at all? They just have Joe Snitch saying, well, I, yeah, we moved, moved a truck two years ago on this date. They almost we, always have something <clears throat> as a representative of what happened. If well, nothing they else. Have some, they're claiming three, here's three kilos from the score. Yeah, but they actually had the possession. I mean, they, they, like you're talking historical cases where say say this deal was thirty kilos. Um, oh, so you're it, saying they caught him with they caught him with the kilos they put in his car, but then they couldn't reproduce them at court. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, in, in your scenario, I represent a drug dealer, and uh, he got caught with a kilo of cocaine, and then snitch one, two, three, and four all come up and say, "I do a kilo a month with this guy." Now, as part of the indictment, they're putting the historical kilos on it, but they still have the one that they caught me with. Okay. In this situation. The one they caught me with is either fake or it's questionable whether it ever existed. Now, does that now can they prove a case? Well, here's what I don't understand. They, They've they, got the they caught him with thirty two, right? No, they caught they gave. I thought, what, I he thought did what they was, gave him. No. Oh, they so they just put a satchel in the back. We and, have no idea, uh, right? Okay. At court, they only produced okay a portion of it. Well, yeah, that was I. I can't remember the exact cuts, but that was probably his cut. He got. He didn't get half. I don't think he got half. Whatever, whatever he was supposed to get, they said they found it all. He yeah. got three kilos. So you would think when they would go to court, they would come with the dirty bag and, and all, you know what I mean, the whole, the whole 70, the the 70 pounds of, 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 of it instead of two blocks. Yeah. And it's like, well, where's the rest? If you found it, if you found, if you found all that I'm getting charged with, where is it? See, now that starts to sound an awful like a lot like entrapment. So if I've got this tale of lore I'm learning about over the campfires, drinking beer and pulling tubes and getting high with uh, Julian, and, uh, and I reach out to third parties without Julian knowing and explain, man, there's a treasure out there. Go find it. And they're like, we're going to get this guy. <laughs> we got a live one. So they go, they go claim to dig up all the cocaine, deliver it to him, and then charge him with crimes. I mean, it... it the evidence sort of could have been presented that way. And it's also presented in a way that he had no chance of ever doing it on his own. He was completely, it was an impossible crime for him on his own. Unless the government got involved, finished the deal for him, even if it did exist, he couldn't have done it. He tried. He, he, would, he would have never been able to do it. Even the guy that became the snitch at the end told him that he was like, if he'd have got it, I would have robbed him. I might have killed him. He said, he said, I would have killed him. 
He's like, I know people get killed for ten thousand dollars. This is two. He was million. like two million. I'd have killed him. This so, is the government snitch. Yeah. yeah. This, you know, I mean, okay. this is the street. But snitch. at one point, okay. he wasn't the snitch before he got busted. You know, what I mean, but yeah. he was like this. So his yeah. mind there was that this guy gets all this cocaine. Oh. I'm getting all of it. I'm taking. I would, I would meet him at his office and I'd shoot him and I would take it. Yeah, done. He would have never. He would have never got it. But there's like this prosecutor state, you know, criminal perspective angle on this, which is just you knew that the guy was going to hand you half of a score of cocaine, and you drove there and you accepted it. I had all and the criminal you intent. You were going to get in that car and you were going to start it up and you were going to do what you were going to do with it. No, that it's was like if I'm that, on the if was, I'm on yeah. the uh, the government side, that's what I. That's like pre, the predisposed. I mean, this guy, the, his plan when he heard this sitting around the campfire was, I'm going to go find this crap. And when he had trouble finding this crap, he solicited other people, or at least enga- agreed to engage with other people and saying, Yeah, I got the map. Cool. Wait, I don't well, have to do much work. This is even better. So what do you th- I can get my score. Oh, here we go. Hold on. Here we I don't go. Know. So here's Matthews. How did, how did it shake out the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court case uh, in Matthews? 45 U.S., and this is at page 33, predisposition should not be confused with intent or mens rea. Now, mens rea is criminal intent. Okay. A person may have the requisite intent to commit the crime, yet be entrapped. Um, And and this is the the converse is also true. Predisposition may exist even in the absence of prior criminal involvement. Uh, And that talks about the ready commission of a criminal act, such as where a defendant promptly accepts an undercover agent's offer of an opportunity to buy or sell drugs, may itself be predisposition. In other words, it's not, not definitive either way. Um, again, the focus is, was the defendant an unwary innocent or instead an unwary criminal who readily availed himself of the opportunity? Um, and Here's what I keep asking myself. If, if, you, if this is an entrapment, I guess when can you come up with another scenario when the entrapment would actually fit? Well, I think predisposition screwed this guy. I think the problem, if I'm arguing the government side and I think it's legitimate and I think the case probably came out correctly if he were convicted – um, not that I don't love winning these cases, but if you, I think what's his, the predisposition element that you hate the most, his, his predisposition here, if I'm the government, I'm going to say, all right, so you've got to decide, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, whether this gentleman was predisposed to commit this act. Now, what I mean by predisposition is, did he, was he going to do it? Did he want to do it? Did he engage? What evidence do we know? Or do we have in front of us that is uncontroverted? that he engaged in acts that, if successful, would have committed this crime. And not because he thought he was, or he was being induced by a government. He did it without the government, without knowing there was any government action and would have done it with anybody. He flew down to Puerto Rico, tried to dig, tried to find it. Flew down to Puerto Rico a second time, tried to find a shovel. And and then found a shovel and tried to dig it up and failed. And then engaged with others uh, who uh, happily, we're going to go do it for him and agree to split it. So take for a second that he wouldn't have done the third thing because he would have given up, but that's not predisposition. Predisposition is, did he, was he going to do this? Yes. He told us he was going to do it. He told the agent he had tried twice to do it. Certainly he was predisposed just because he's never committed a crime before. doesn't mean that he didn't want to do it this time. Um, now, if I'm the defense, I'm going to say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That sounds fine and dandy. But here's the deal. This guy was unable to commit this crime, had abandoned all efforts to commit the crime, but for the government involvement. Not only that, um, he was being enticed and induced the entire time by the government to go down and do this and get this done. Because and even now when he gave know, over the map, he assumed he was not going to get paid. He's dealing yeah. with a drug dealer. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. And 
Couple that, ladies and gentlemen, with one huge question mark that nobody's provided any answer for. Why don't we have documentation, pictures, evidence Chain of, custody. of the dig? This is a treasure hunt, folks. This is a, this is a life, a, a career-making case. You get to tell this story your entire career. You have flown down to Puerto Rico on a treasure hunt induced by an unwitting unicorn. That's their word, criminal. And you don't take pictures of it? You just take one cryptic picture in the dark of something that doesn't even readily look like cocaine? You have to take their word for it? And then when they produce this in court, where's the rest? Where's the explanation for this? Where is it? So I'm going to just tell you, if you got any doubts about that, you don't have to quit just on that. But you don't think that this is entrapment? This what would be if, a fun argument to make to lay people. What, what, what if just how, for how a do you, second? How do, you think, how do you think the jury is feeling right now, Jeff? Man, you just never, I mean, the, the hardest part to me in, in trying to get this point across is it's confusing. It's confusing for even lawyers, I think. And, and entrapment is a concept that I've, uh, I mean, we've, there's a case I can think of, a drug case where we threw it around, but it was never presented. Um, I mean, obviously it was just tongue in cheek with prosecutors, maybe, but the case resolved. I've never seen just a hard and fast entrapment type case. So then trying to explain the entrapment laws to them and then apply it to your case I think for a bunch of lay people, it's going to be very hard to un- understand. And ultimately, I think they're going to get back to what I said. It's like, wait a minute, this guy had a scheme. It doesn't help him, I think, that he lost a lot and was living in a trailer and trying to find a quick way to make a buck and found a quick way to make a buck, made efforts to try to make that buck, probably thought, well, oh, crap, I'm not going to get this done, but hey, I'm rolling with guys that might be able to get it done, so I'll, I'll give them a little bit, I'll give them the map, maybe, hey, maybe they cut me in at some point, if not, so be it, but hey, maybe this is a handshake deal that I, they're going to make good on, and then when it does, he says, holy crap, this is amazing, this is going to happen for me, let's go do it. He walked into Gander Mountain knowing what he was going to do, you know what I mean, found the guy thanked the guy said you're a true businessman thank you and went out to that truck knowing what he was going to find and in fact checked it checked it didn't just drive away he wanted to make it i got it open that bag unzip that bag knowing what he was going to see he saw it got in that car saying i've done it i've done it and then the, then they're there the cops are there it's like ah, people are going to so, they're so going right. to wrestle with they that out to my dad is not going to you know if given that opportunity he's not going to run there and pick up a bunch of cocaine he's just not yeah. you know what i mean so it's like well, when, and when you're dealing with lay people in a jury like that to me that almost has to be a decision that a judge has to make before we get your verdict on August 17, 1984, John DeLorean was found not guilty by a federal jury today. So what, what, what was his factual scenario? Showing videotapes of Mr. DeLorean saying, I want to proceed with a drug deal. And in the end, accepting a suitcase with 50, 55 pounds of cocaine, the government had sought to depict him as a venal, ego-driven businessman trying to save his British American automobile company through the sale of narcotics. The jury trial lasted 22 weeks. Holy uh, the jurors saw entrapment. And this doesn't talk about all the evidence that was presented, but my recollection Some is... Some defense attorney probably got paid from Mr. DeLorean. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there were ongoing, constant pressure and efforts to get DeLorean to participate. And I think okay. they, they really did overcome his will not to in that case. Okay. Um, and and that, was, that, that was sort of my recollection last time I reviewed all the evidence in that case. Our case, meh, maybe not. So you heard DeLorean gets acquitted. What do you do? You're, you don't know the outcome yet. 
You said almost a judge has to make that decision. The judge let the entrapment instruction. So you guys know what happened to him at trial? I know what happened. I say guilty. 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 He was convicted. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty. Now, here's what's interesting. It gets better. It does. He's convicted. So now he's got a federal conviction for a money or uh, drug trafficking and uh, drug possession conspiracy, money laundering, the whole nine yards um, with a 10 year nut mandatory 10. I mean, this is, this is mandatory 10 little deck. He goes to sentencing in federal court. As we've talked about before in the Blinsky Chronicles and elsewhere, the sentencing process is really a a life of its own. It's got its own own process. And just because you went to trial and lost doesn't mean it. the, the sentencing process doesn't proceed as it should. And um, that, that means he went and he talked to a probation officer. They prepared a pre-sentence investigation report, and they made recommendations about how the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines should apply, and uh, then he shows up for sentencing. Well, there is something in the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines. Um, well, hold on. Before we get they, there, they let me talk, just tell you They this. talk with the, the judge. There's a federal judge in this documentary at the end standing in a federal courtroom, I think, uh, in a suit, not a robe, talking about the case. He presided over it? He presided over it. Okay. And um, the, the defense lawyer had said, had sort of described him like we would, one of the real, one of the great judges, a judge who isn't just a hangman judge, nor is he a shill for the defense, you know, isn't just a prosecutor's puppet uh, and, and really gives you a fair chance and doesn't punish people necessarily for going to trial. And this judge is like, look, the jury found him guilty. It was probably uh, the right thing to do. So I'm looking at a guy who's got a 10-year mandatory sentence. In the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines, we have something called the safety valve. And I just didn't feel right. I didn't think it was correct. I didn't think it was the right sentence to put this gentleman in prison for 10 years. The government, the United States Attorney's Office, was jumping up and down and saying he committed the crime. He's got to do the time. The judge federal judge from the bench gives him 30 days 60. or 60 days and safety valves him. A safety valve in the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines is a way to bust the mandatory minimum sentence. That means that if it's a first-time offender, meaning no prior record, it can be maybe something minimal. It means that um, there's no gun involved and some other factors lined up in your favor that uh, you can break through the mandatory minimums. The other way to do that in a federal case is to become a snitch our guy didn't had nobody to snitch on because he was a unicorn. So he did not snitch, uh, could not get his 5K1 uh, reduction so, because he went to trial, didn't accept responsibility because he went to trial, um, didn't get timely acceptance of responsibility because he went to trial. All these things are ways you right, get right. sort of reductions. It just goes up. When you say no um, to a plea deal, I mean, you're, just, yeah, you're, you're just, gone with all that stuff. You have every chip in your hand on the table yeah. or in your pocket on the table. And the federal judge steps in and says, you know what, I'm going to find a safety valve here. I'm going to agree, probably the defense argued it. I'm going to agree with the defense. There is a safety valve. This gentleman's never been in trouble. Um, it, it was, it, it, the, the offense would not have happened except for the government. And whether it's entrapment or not, it wouldn't have happened. Just couldn't have done it. Um, Man, and you think he'll that he'll never that, do it again. That defense attorney had to have a moment where he was like, what if I just wave jury? You just don't know. Like, he had time to have, wave if they had some, if they had, no, I know no. if they had some conversations in chambers and you get that vibe sometimes, it's like, he did give him the the five years of probation, and in that five years, I forget the exact amount. It was either twenty hours a month a or week. a week. Twenty hours a week, he had to build homes for Habitat for Humanity. Oh, all right. Well, because that's, he, he probably has to do he's that. He's got his construction company. He's got yeah. things to put forth, and uh, 
I do believe it looks like he's continued on with it even after he's done there. He's uh, found great enjoyment in in handing over the houses and building the houses well, for people. Yep. And, and, and I, it's such a it's such a moment for in my job when at the end of that it almost made me you know it really made me feel good because it was like you know I say it all the time people have heard me say this all the time most if not ninety nine percent of the folks who we help are good people who have just gotten sideways, screwed up, whether it's mental health, whether it's drugs, whether it's something, but most are, are good people and have potential in the world and have gone in a different, not all, but most of them are. And for the judge to see this and then to see the result of this guy who could have spent a decade in prison, who was out working on Habitat for Humanity, he was so humble too. It's not like the guy was a, was an asshole. He, he, he's, he's a guy you'd hang out with. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, he's, right. He's just, yeah. yeah. You know, he's Uncle Bob. You know, he's yeah. just a guy who you'd, you'd want to hang out with at Thanksgiving. He's the guy that if you needed uh, help rebuilding your deck because the boards are rotted, he would be there doing it. And it, it appeared he had remorse, tremendous amount of remorse. And he just got for, sucked in. He got sucked yeah. in, and he was like, I can't believe that was the stupidest thing. I, don't, I can't believe I ever got into it, but it was like a myth. It was like, right. you know what I mean? It's like chasing a unicorn, something that you're, yeah. you're never going to get or find. And, but in the end there, it does, it did look like it had a good ending. And I do believe that the judge did the right thing yep. because it looks like he is going to be a good contributor to society. Yeah. And, you know, it was all sort of interesting. He said, uh, and I, I believed him, he said, you know, he made this comment, you know, you get married, you're married after married for 25, 30 years. One of the things that sort of, that falls off, uh, in your daily interaction with your spouse is kissing. You just don't kiss your wife that much anymore if you've been married for this kind of time somehow that's one of those things that drive me and he said he's like man the first thing i did when she picked me up from prison is i kissed her you know it's like and, oh, and they, that's cool and it was you could just see how this guy was appreciative of the mistake he made and the break he got and he was still working with uh habitat for humanity so really yeah the the whole uh, back to the you know the circle all the way back around uh it it really was an awesome documentary for all sorts of reasons. And it just it made me think how much we could talk about here at the, at the it's, it's a good watch. I liked how they shot it. I liked how they told the story. I liked, it was, it was a good story. And, you know, as I was watching it, I knew, I mean, as you're watching, you're like, okay, at one, you know, at some point in time, it's the not going to go yeah, well, right. something, the shoe's going <laughs> to drop. And, and then when it did, and he sat there and, and he just, you know, I mean, he really, he teared up and he just really, he felt bad for what he did to his daughter and what he did to his wife and, and where yeah. he put them. And, and, and then he just thought about, you know, which he still had a business, you know I mean? His, his business wasn't done. He just didn't have the, the million dollar home. He still had, you know, I don't know the number of employees, but he said at one point in time, 800. Eight, yeah, the huge. I mean, he had, you know, 800 people working for you. That's a big number. And you can just tell the whole thing had centered him. It, it was like a, almost a redemption story again, where it's like he had gone off on this conspicuous consumption uh, journey in pre-2008 days, made a ton of money, spent a ton of money, uh, lived beyond his means a little bit, thought he could keep it up forever. You know, just spending like a drunken sailor, um, had the rug pulled out from under him in 2008, and then went to this spiral to the point where he's chasing cocaine as a treasure, almost ruins the rest of his life by going to prison, ruining his family. And uh, I think at the end of the day, everything he was doing, I think, was to try to give his wife and his child a, right. a thing. And then he got caught up in, in all the wrong stuff. And then at the end, he, there he is just sitting there with his spit cup 
and his chew and his lazy boy and his lazy lounger in in the same trailer that it started and he he just felt good about his life again so anyway I mean, they talked they talked to some of the neighbors you know that had been around the bonfires yeah. and they were like we had no idea he was doing this the one guy was like this he was like if he had been i'd have nipped him right you know what i mean they're right. they, like i'd have told him not to do this and then they finally go to jillian because the whole show they're just kind of watching At him walk around and they sit down and they're like i want to hear your story because evidently jillian used to tell this story all the time and he told it to everybody and he was like he sat down and he said i don't have a story it's not mine anymore mm. Yep. And because because at one point in time it was his about how yeah, he right, right. found seventy pounds of blow and he well, buried it and but now he's like it's not me now it is and you never saw Jillian you saw like a side view of him but not his face you saw like his feet walking barefoot in the sand but not his body uh, yeah um, you saw like some hands hanging up stuff on clotheslines but not him and then at the end they finally show him and it's like it's not my story anymore. Yeah, it was, it was just a. It was a That's it was a cool. One I gotta watch it. I mean, yeah, it's like I'll 80, tell you what I'm gonna do. Minutes, it's, it's I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a week off because I don't think they ever got this stuff. We're going to Puerto Rico. I'm gonna no, book a flight you, to Puerto Rico. I bet you there's tons of people. At the, at the end of the at the end of the show, they leave the longitude longitude uh, numbers. No. Yeah. yeah. No, I did ever find really? it. They leave it there. So I wonder if anybody's. You know what this like, is? It's all a fraud. It's all the Puerto Rican travel industry trying to get people down there to go. Oh, uh, that's my, trips you never know, man. man. Never know now. All right. Well, that is lawyer talk. And that is, in fact, what John DeLorean, Back to the Future, and Netflix have in common. We have now linked all three. 1.21 gigawatts. Yep. Great Scott. Lawyer talk off the record on the air, at least until now.